Right, we're in the middle of a five-week series called um, Gospel Intentionality. And the idea with this series is that this is about what we do as Christians, not who we are as Christians. There's a lot of ideas of, of who we are and what Christ has done for us, but what does it mean? How do we act? What do we do? Because we're busy people. Uh, we have a lot going on. This is a church that is in Somerville, Massachusetts, one of the most busy cities in uh, the country. And we need to think through how do we act in a uniquely Christian way with all the different things that we do? And how, what do we need to do in addition to the things that our neighbors would do? How does, it, how does our life look different from the people who are around us? What do we do as Christians? But we live in gospel intentionality. We're ordinary people that live intentionally li- intentional lives fueled by the gospel. And how do we do that? Well, one of the, this week we're talking about how we live with gospel intentionality in our society. Over the past year, there's been a huge push for social justice in our society. With the killings of uh, people like Breonna Taylor and Amon Arbery and George Floyd, there's been this, this huge push for justice in society. Now, this hasn't caused a small controversy in the church, but a large controversy in the church. Because among church leaders, and some of you might be ignorant of this, but among church leaders and people in the church, there are some who say, this is what the church is all about. We need to be defending the vulnerable, speaking up, protesting, getting active with these things. And then there are others who say, hey, you're losing the main thing. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. We should be just preaching the gospel. Why aren't we preaching the gospel? That's what our emphasis is. And so how does the Bible teach Christians to interact with society? How does the Bible teach Christians to pursue justice? And how does this look different from the way that the rest of the world interacts with society and pursues justice? That's what we're talking about today. Three points today um, from, from the text that we're about to open to. And you can go ahead and start turning there if you want. It's in Micah chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, I hope you, I hope you do. If you don't, you can turn it on. Um, and we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 6. And it's just one, one small verse. But the three points as you turn there are this, this. Point one, Christian, you are required to do justice. Point two, where does the motivation for that justice come from? And point three, how do we do justice? So point one, Christian, you are required to do justice. The text is this beautiful, elegant, powerful verse from Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. And it says this. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The NIV translates it just a little bit differently, and it says, instead of kindness, it says mercy. So, he has told you, a man, what is good, and what, the, what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6.8 is such a great summary for what the Christian life looks like, what it's supposed to look like. We're not supposed to be people that have our acts together, who snub our noses at those who don't have their acts together. We're not supposed to be self-righteous, better than everybody else. We're supposed to be people who walk humbly, do justice, and love mercy. What an outstanding way to live. 
And what a hard way to live. I mean, when you think about what it looks like to walk humbly, do justice, and love mercy, the image that should come to your mind would be one Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's what this man did. He embodied this verse. Walking humbly, gave up his throne, loved justice, healing people, caring for people, defending the widows, hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and the, and, and the uh, rejected of society, and loving mercy. Loving mercy. He was not outraged. He loved mercy. The only thing, time that he was outraged is when the religious people were putting more restrictions on the vulnerable or were hurting the vulnerable. So, Christian, what does the Lord require of you? A lot of times we think about what the Lord requires of us is just don't break the rules. Be a good person. Follow the Ten Commandments. And surely He does require those things of us, but He also requires of us in this verse to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly. So let's walk through this verse. Let's start with the first part. What does it look like to walk humbly? To walk humbly simply means that you don't think you're better than anybody else. To walk humbly simply means that you don't think you're better than anybody else. Let me give you an illustration. Just literally walking my dog. I've been thinking about this sermon while walking my dog. I've got like two illustrations from it. I have recently, about a year ago, I started wearing a mask every time I walked the dog, every time I got, went out of the house. I would walk by people and think I was better than other people when they weren't wearing a mask. Now, I'm like, masks off, all right? They told me I don't have to wear it. I'm not wearing it outside anymore. And I think I'm better than people when they're wearing a mask. Uh, it's like my heart just can't decide. Well, you know what my heart's set on? My heart's set on me and thinking I'm better than other people. That's just a small illustration. But to walk humbly means that you look at the poor, and you know that could just as easily have been you. You look at the, the vulnerable, and you know that could have just as easily been you. And so you don't think you're better than anybody else. You don't have a, a, an air, a, a sense of arrogance about you. You're walking humbly. I probably know this better than anyone should because I grew up really poor. <laughs> like, we lived in the poorest area of the country. My mother made minimum wage. It's hard to live on minimum wage. I lived in government-subsidized housing for most of my life. I didn't know we were poor, but... I'm still unpacking that. I'm like unraveling it uh, like all the time. I should not act like I'm better than anybody else, but yet my heart goes there oftentimes. God calls us to walk humbly, but he also calls us to do justice and to love kindness. A lot of times we try to break these into two different things, doing justice and loving kindness, but I really don't think that they're two different things. The, the word for, for justice is, is mishpat in uh, the Hebrew, and the word for kindness, loving kindness is kesed. And so what these words mean in the Hebrew is the justice one, the mishpat. It's the thing that you do. You're doing justice. And the, the loving kindness one, the mercy one, that's what you are. You, you are doing it in that way. So you do justice in a kind and loving way. That's what the scripture is teaching us to do. It's like how you do it. So you do justice. How do you do justice? By loving kindness. Through loving kindness. You do it in a kind and merciful way. Compare this to how our culture does justice. 
Our culture does justice not with kindness, but with outrage. It's very fashionable today to be outraged. Don't do justice out of merciful love, but out of hate and vengeance and retribution. Our culture has lifted the mob into the place of God as supreme judge. Christians should look different in how we pursue justice. The same things should bother us oftentimes, but man, we are people of grace and kindness and love. That's something that's so respectable about the first civil rights movement uh, in, in the 60s, first, is that it was motivated out of this love, this compassion, this non-retaliation, these biblical principles that Martin Luther King Jr. championed. Now, what does it mean to do justice? And that's a big question. But biblically, what it means to do justice is to treat people equitably and fairly. All people treated equitably and fairly. This means that Christians are called to be active with those who are not treated equitably and fairly. With the disadvantaged, with the poor, and with the vulnerable. We're to have the same heart for hurting people that God has. And God has a heart for hurting people. If you read your scripture, this becomes very clear. Let me give you just three scriptural examples of how God's heart is for hurting people. Zechariah verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 10. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. The sojourner, really the best way to interpret that these days is immigrant and loves the immigrant, loves the refugee. That's the way that we should be thinking about that. It's a someone who's, who's temporarily in your country or who has traveled to your country. Notice it, it combines like this very lofty, presentation of who God is. He is Lord of Lords, God of God's mighty, exalted. And what's the very next thing? How is he these ways? What makes him like this? Because he defends the fatherless and the widows, and he cares about the vulnerable immigrants. This is a great and mighty thing. God is so good, and you know how he's good? Because he cares about those who are vulnerable. It must be in our hearts. If we call ourselves Christians, which is literally little Christ, if we call ourselves Christians, we must have this in our character. James 1.27 puts it like this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So it's not just follow the rules, but it's also do justice, care about the vulnerable. No heart that is on fire for Christ can be icy when it comes to the vulnerable. Those things don't go together. When we love those with needs, we are reflecting the very heart of Christ. The Bible is very clear. To walk humbly with God is to do justice and mercy. You cannot simply preach the gospel. 
you must also care about the things that God cares about, and God cares about the vulnerable and needy. Now, what motivates this justice? (laughs) The motivations for ministries of mercy, like serving the poor and that sort of thing, are so complicated. So complicated. What motivates you to serve the poor and to care for those who are vulnerable? It's almost impossible to do out of a pure heart. For example, I grew up in a rural area where there were a lot of poor people, but for some reason I never thought about serving the poor people in my own hometown, and then I moved to, which I was one of for many years, um, and then I moved to a city, and I was hyped about serving in a homeless shelter. Like, that was literally one of the very first things I did when I moved to the city, is I looked up a homeless shelter, called them, said, hey, how do I serve? Sign me up. It just seemed so attractive to me. It seemed like the type of things that Christians should be doing, which my motivations probably were not bad, but in some ways they were, because I know it didn't come completely from a pure heart. I didn't care that much about the homeless people that I was serving. I just thought it made me feel better to serve them. Isn't it true that the the poor, the homeless, have nothing to offer us but a sense of superiority? And that's how I felt. (laughs) And I liked that feeling. But it's not a lasting motivation. It might get you to go out once or twice a few times, but it doesn't continue forever. Bruce Watke's definition, he's an Old Testament professor and, and, and theologian and, and uh, an amazing scholar. He, he defines just living like this. He says, this is how the just live. This is how the righteous live. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of the community, while the wicked will disadvantage the community for advantage of self. Let me say that one more time. The righteous, the just, will disadvantage self for the advantage of the community, while the wicked will disadvantage the community for the advantage of self. That's a profound statement. It means that to live justly, to do justice, means that you are constantly sacrificing your own personal preferences, money, comfort, and time. You're constantly putting yourself in a disadvantaged state for the advantage of the community. Let me give you a few examples. Fostering a child is disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of your community. Children need parents. And parenting is not convenient. Taking a pay cut so that your employees can make a living, a living wage is a way to disadvantage self and live for your community and advantage your community. Here's a random one, another dog walking one. I wanted to get real small here. I was walking the dog. My dog pooped. I didn't have a bag. What do I do? Do I just leave it? That's, disadvantage, that's advantaging myself by disadvantaging the community leaving my dog's refuge, refuse out there. I have to get a bag. (laughs) I either have to disadvantage myself by asking a stranger, or I have to walk home, get a bag, and walk back. But that's a small example. As I did that, I was like, well, how do I live justly? 
How do I do justice? How do I advantage the community? It's just a small example of how you can play this out. You can play it out with all kinds of things. I was at Home Depot yesterday. Same thing. I had this practically, I had one of those big carts because we were buying mulch or something. And, and what do you do at Home Depot when you have one of those carts? You just like push it into the empty space, right? That's like what you're supposed to do. That's what everybody else does. But I said, I'm going to disadvantage self to live justly and advantage the community. And I took it back. This just went through my head. Maybe it'll be something that goes through your head in that way. One th person that I think about that really embodied this holistically is a man named Henri Nguyen. Is anybody familiar with Henri Nguyen? A few people. Henri Nguyen was a priest and an amazing author. I actually recommend his books. I don't agree with everything he says, but I think he's got a heart for the Lord that's just fantastic. And he was a professor at Yale, at Notre Dame, at Harvard. He was very acclaimed, it was, it spoke often, it was given many opportunities, and um, it, the best book that he wrote is The Parable of the Prodigal Son, okay? I'll just throw that out there. It's fantastic. Um, he gave it all up and went and lived in Toronto with um, people with disabilities and served until his dying day with people with disabilities. He gave up all of his all of his acclaim, all of his, all of his uh, uh, lofty status, and went and lived with people that didn't know who he was and didn't care. So he could just love them and do justice. What a fantastic story. Now, God's not calling all of us to do that. But when we think about living a life this way, how do we, how do we feel? How does that make you feel? It makes me feel exhausted thinking about living a disadvantaged life all the time. It's exhausting. What could possibly motivate anyone to give up their time, money, preferences, and comfort in this way? Not occasionally, but all the time. Only if you have experienced a deep, sacrificial love where someone has disadvantaged themselves for your advantage holistically, completely, can you truly be motivated to live this way with a pure heart? Let me share a verse with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, church, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Is that not a definition of this type of living? Though he was rich, he became poor, so that you might, through his poverty, become rich. Friends, you have and have never had anything to offer to God. You are the poor person who has nothing to offer. But yet, he saved you by grace. He loved you like his own child. He became poor. He gave up his throne in heaven and his right to be considered equal with God by taking on human flesh. He became literally poor, but more than that, he became poor of spirit <laughs> so that we might become rich and be fooled with the love of Christ, we might be full and might grasp this unsurpassing knowledge that is the love of Christ. That is what he wants for us. Friends, he is rich to the point to where he could give you anything in the world. 
God could give you anything in the world, but yet he chooses to give you that which is most valuable. And it's this, acceptance, forgiveness, friendship. Friendship. How important is friendship? God chooses friendship over riches. I love the way that J.C. Ryle puts friendship. He says, friendship is the thing that halves our sorrows and doubles our joys. Friendship halves our sorrows and doubles our joys. Friendship with anybody, but certainly friendship with God, who gave up his exalted state so that we might have friendship with him, so that we might be brought into his family. If you understand that, if you understand how he disadvantaged himself to advantage you, then maybe you might be able to serve others and disadvantage yourself for the advantage of others without an air of superiority, of feeling better than them, of trying to use them for your own self-promotion. When you understand the love of Christ, it's a far better motivator for ministries of mercy and justice. Now let's, let's finish this with how do we do justice? How do we do justice? There's conflicting ideas about how we do justice. And um, the, the liberal people tend to want to make everything to be addressed from the top down. Uh, more government programs, more handouts. Conservative people want it all to be addressed from the bottom up. Less government, more personal responsibility. One can accuse the liberals of being angry and, and the conservatives of being apathetic, although I have met many conservatives that are angry and liberals that are apathetic. It goes both ways. And so which one is it? And I think they're both overly simplistic. I think they're overly simplistic. There's more to poverty than what we think. Because being poor is not just about being materially disadvantaged. The word poor in the Old Testament is used both of material uh, poorness, poverty, and spiritual poverty. It's the same word used in, in both ways. Poverty is multifaceted. I've heard a poor person describe poverty like this. I read this in a book. And it said this, in, in part, is about having no money. But there's more to poverty than that. It's about being isolated, unsupported, uneducated, and unwanted. Poor people want to be included and not judged and rescued at times of crises. I saw a um, political cartoon this week that had a poor child, girl, and a, a, a rich little girl. And you could tell they were poor and rich by the way it was drawn. And the poor girl said to the rich girl, Why does your family have so much and we have so little? And the rich girl said, my parents are working very hard to figure out why that is. I just thought it was, it was pithy and interesting the way that they put that. Sometimes we make it, we try to solve these problems so much without just any personal loving kindness. You see, if there's any responsibility that should be placed, it should be on, on those who want to help others. We need to take personal responsibility. To, allevi to alleviate poverty, but not just spiritual, but not just physical poverty, but, but spiritual. So we have to care for people holistically. 
We can't just eliminate physical needs without addressing all the other needs. So the gospel is central to everything that we do, but let me explain it to you like this. I have three kids, and the thing that I want most for my children is for them to understand the gospel. That's my number one desire for all of my kids. But does that mean that I'm going to fail to feed them and clothe them and care for them and give them a relationship and sit with them and talk to them about My Little Pony and whatever else they might want to talk to me about? No. I holistically love them as humans. So to say, just preach the gospel, man, you're missing on so much because you're not loving people holistically. But the gospel must be central. It must be central. I can't do what it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi and say, preach the gospel always, use words if necessary. Because the gospel is good news. So words are necessary to tell good news to someone. First of all, no one knows that we have no record of St. Francis ever actually saying that. Second of all, it's impossible. Because if I use words when, if necessary, then my kids just don't get the gospel. I'm only giving them love and not, and not the good news. I get a ton of requests each year to do more service projects. I love service projects. I want us to be more active in our community, but I don't want poor people to feel like they're our project to make us feel better about ourselves. I want our church to be the type of church, get that, this is, where, this is where the meat and potatoes of our mercy ministry is. We're the type of church that develops relationships with people who are vulnerable and disadvantaged. That is so much harder than doing a service project. A lot of you are like, oh, how am I going to do that? Well, one in 10 people in Somerville lives under the poverty line. It just means you need to go out and meet 10 people and hope that they're one of 10, hope the statistics hold true. You just got to build relationships, and it's really hard. You have to disadvantage yourself for the advantage of your community. You might have to change some of your rhythms and patterns, and I am of the first most. I, I am of the utmost. This is, so, this is a difficult word for me. Difficult. Building a friendship with someone who is a needy is a lot harder than just serving a service project. It feels so unproductive. But friends, most ministry, valuable ministry, is unproductive. Terribly unproductive. One pastor puts it like this. He says, the best thing we can do for the poor is offer them a place of welcome and community. Our first priority in social involvement is to be the church, a community to welcome, of welcome to, and occlusion of the marginalized. This needs to go deeper than a warm handshake. People are often unaware of how much the culture of their church is shaped by their social class. Same author says, the poor need a friend who will eat and drink with them, who will care for them. Another pastor puts it like this, justice is an everyday activity. It's not to be pursued only in courts and legislatures. We must be the kind of church that opens our tables in our homes to people who are vulnerable and disadvantaged. That's who we are. As Christ lovers, as people who follow Jesus, we eat with those who are rejected by society. Let's invite them to our tables and build relationships, practicing holistic ministry, both of word and deed, 
just as he has invited us to his table, and we get to share in friendship with him. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was having dinner with his friends, and he initiated a sacred meal. And he broke the bread, and he said something weird. He said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And at that moment, he initiated a sacred meal that we practice to this day, where we remember that Jesus disadvantaged himself for our advantage, that his body was broken for us on the cross. He went to death for his enemies, such as you and I. And as we practice this, we're being invited to the table over and over and over again to sit as one of Jesus' friends, as sinners and sufferers, as people who have communion with God the Father. If you are a Christian here with us today, we invite you to the table, and we have these little packets that you can participate with. If you're not a Christian, we invite you uh, to receive Christ, to, sit, to take a seat at the table and receive him as a friend, as someone who wants to dine with you. So we're going to stand and sing a, a final song and, and practice communion as we go through it. So I'll, I'll direct you as to when to take uh, the, the elements. So let's, let's pray. Our God, as we come to the table now, we pray that you will be transforming our lowly hearts to be people that are filled with the fullness of Christ, who dwell with you, each and every day. And God, as we practice this meal, remind us of your presence and the way that you care for us and love us and give us motivation to care for other people in a self-sacrificial way, just as you have cared for us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.